0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10 verses 6 to 8. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles, that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Let's pray. Our Father, please open our hearts to your word this morning. Please guard the words I say. For I am weak and fallible, but your word is strong. Your word is reliable. Your spirit is truth. And so we would hear from you today, not the opinions of men, but the Word of God. We do pray for those who are facing this great storm. Likewise, we pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ who throughout the world, even this day, are being martyred for their faith their witness bearing testimony to the surpassing greatness, the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that their testimony would have its desired effect. For God, precious in Your sight is the death of your holy ones. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who leads us every single step. Amen. We come this morning to a rather difficult passage in Ezra. Now for some, the decision made earlier in this chapter to dissolve these illegal and these immoral marriages to the idolaters is the sticking point that they have in Ezra. But in the passage today, we see the threat of banning individuals and families, forfeiting their lands and properties for the sake of meeting in Jerusalem to begin the investigation into the people's rebellion. Because we mustn't forget that against the explicit law of God, the exiles who had returned prior to Ezra's group had in many cases married with the idolaters of the land. So these measures, while painful and inconvenient, were absolutely necessary to bring the people to make the crucial corrections in their lives. As we discussed before when we looked at verses 1 to 4 of this chapter, the marriages were nothing of the sort. They were not the case where God had joined two together. They were, in fact, a mockery of marriage as God had ordained it, because God will not violate His own law. His people were never to be joined with idolaters, and He would never bless those unions. You may recall though that many legitimate marriages in the Scriptures were made between those born of the unlawful nations and those who were born in the nation of Israel. You might remember Rahab, the Canaanite, harlot, who married into Israel. You might remember Ruth, the Moabitess, who married Boaz. And both of these end up in the lineage of David and later Jesus Christ. But in these cases in particular, the woman had declared her loyalty to God and to His people, leaving behind her idolatry before those marriages commenced. She was no longer an idolater. She had left that behind to serve the living God before she was married to a son of Israel. Had the marriages been made prior to her repentance, they would have been just as sinful, just as evil, just as rebellious, and just as cursed as these arrangements Ezra is having to deal with in this chapter. And it is this very distinction, whether the non-Jew in the relationship is a follower of God or not, that is the purpose of this meeting in Jerusalem. Like I told you, when we looked at the solution that was come up with, this was never about racial purity or any abomination like that. This was about the holiness about the separateness of God's people from the idols of the land. Because God's people must be holy. God's people must separate themselves from the taint of this world. And most of the life and the study of a child of God is finding those places where we are being mixed with the earthly, fleshly lusts and striking those areas down, putting them to death in our souls. This last Wednesday, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior." God's people, which today is the church, cannot hope to stand against the temptations and trials of the enemy if we have been infected by the passions of the world. We will simply excuse them. We will have an empty grace. We will not have a grace that points to the cross. We would have simply a doting grandfather who says, it's all right. Everybody sins. But that's been the message that has been told to us so many times in churches. Sin is never okay. Rebellion is never okay. Holiness is always our goal. And the grace of God is dispensed in one place only, and that is on the cross. Where our old lives were crucified with Christ. Where our flesh is crucified daily with Christ. So that we will be raised with Him. Now you may not have considered this next point, but the world can find no hope in a church that is alloyed and mixed with the pollutions of this world. Think back to the times when you've seen leaders who called themselves Christian fall and the world mocked them mercilessly. Some of it to be sure was just to make sure that everyone knew that they were just as virtuous as these fallen preachers. But more than a little of it, I believe, was the expression of their disappointment that this part of the church had not kept themselves holy. Church, if we are truly to be the city on a hill, if we're truly to be the light of the world, we must always be vigilant over what we believe and what we do. Who in the world will believe a gospel that we preach if they cannot see the gospel, they cannot see the good news that we live? And if we do sin, because we all know we will sin at some point. Christian, even your repentance is a testimony to the world that has lost all its shame even when we are caught in sin our repentance from sin is itself a testimony to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ where will the world find the cure for the hellish hopelessness, the vanity, the darkness in their lives if we've allowed those same vain things to drop a bushel over our lamp. There is, no, there is more to holiness than simply your choice between sinning and not sinning. Holiness affects more than just you. Sinfulness and rebellion hurts more than just you. In his small letter to Philemon, Paul says to his friend, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. That's verse 6. You don't need the chapter because there's only one. What Paul is praying here is that the effectiveness of the faith of Philemon toward others would be continually strengthened by the holiness. What he says, every good thing that Jesus Christ has installed within him. Stop looking at your sin as your sin. Your sin is the church's sin. We are together, one body. And when one part is sick, the entire body suffers. You might remember the sin of Achan who took what was devoted to destruction from Jericho and hid it. But the entire assembly was punished. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, If one member suffers all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We as the church are one body. We don't exist without everybody else. We are a piece of a greater whole. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18, Paul makes that abundantly clear. Saying, now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. We have been given our roles. We have been given our purpose. We have been given our identity in the church. And we are one body. We rise, we fall, we rejoice. We weep together. We are one body. And therefore your trouble is the church's trouble. Because your holiness is part of the light of holiness that the church shines into the world around us. Causing others to glorify God. And that's the very point of our text today in Ezra. The holiness of God's people is the concern of all of God's people. Let's begin by looking at this passage at the very end of the passage. The penalties that are listed in verse 8. His property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. That sounds pretty harsh. Even when we recall that this is the commission that Ezra was given by the order of the king of Persia. If you look back in Ezra chapter 7 verse 26, remember the, the king of Persia told him, "...whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment." Now, I could argue, as some commentators do, that Ezra was gracious in this decree because he did have the power to execute exile or imprison transgressors of the law. I could say that since he didn't move to threaten the most drastic penalties, he was showing some mercy. I could argue that, but I won't. I would rather point your attention to what the penalties are. Were threatened for why were these penalties threatened to the people who were in the land the proclamation did not say that any of those who were found guilty of marrying idolaters would receive this penalty the penalty is threatened for those who would not attend the solemn assembly scheduled to call the people back to holiness back to repentance What the proclamation says is if anyone did not come within three days, then these penalties would be enforced. Now some might whine that three days is not enough time to drop what they're doing and come to Jerusalem. We might look at it today and think, well, there may have been crops to gather. There may have been chores to be done around the house. But in the next paragraph we're told the exact date of the assembly, the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. Now, that may not mean much to us. We don't go by the Jewish lunar calendar. So, let me give you the date in our calendar December 19th, 458 BC. There is no harvesting going on in the middle of December. As for any other excuse, let's face it, people always have an excuse to avoid the things they don't want to do. That's the point of the penalty. While people, particularly people already in rebellion against God, may not make the effort if simply told to come to an assembly, the legal penalty attached is intended to overcome even that reluctance so that the people might come and repent. Because this assembly is important. Consider that using the exact same messengers, Ezra and the leaders in Jerusalem could have simply declared that anyone with a foreign wife must divorce her or suffer those very penalties that were listed. He could have easily sent a copy of the law of God in the edict, and by the power of the Persian king, enforced God's law. He didn't have to call them to an assembly in Jerusalem. He could have executed justice by letter. Ezra would never have needed to leave Jerusalem, allowing the Inquisition to do the work of God in the Jewish community. And it would have been an inquisition, much like the one in the Middle Ages conducted by the Roman Catholic Church and her secular allies. It is a dangerous thing to leave the enforcement of God's law up to ungodly people. Not for the least reason that their own motives, their own lusts, and their own quests for power lead them to ungodly means and ungodly ends. He could have also chosen, along with those leaders, to travel to each location in the province to hold court and to hear the pleas of the accused. He didn't have to call everybody to Jerusalem. He and the leaders could have gone out to all the different cities. But it suffers from the same inherent weakness of the edicts. It is simply a verdict and a punishment. The assembly is important because it is a place where the nation can be called jointly to repentance and holiness in this matter. And that was the goal of Ezra in everything that he is doing. You can write this down. Ezra is not seeking justice. He is seeking repentance. He is not seeking to punish. He is seeking to redeem. All the correction and exhortation done by the church to this day has exactly the same goal. Repentance and grace. He was not seeking to punish the errant. Even those who went into this rebellion knowing full well that they were rebelling against God's law. He wants to place God's law, God's word, in front of them and call them to leave their sin behind. Perhaps I can explain it best this way. Before the courts in this country and in front of most of the civilized governments today, there is, known, there is what is known as the presumption of innocence. What this means is that even though the jury knows that you're not perfect, they begin with the assumption that you did not commit the act that you're accused of. That you are innocent until proven guilty. Probably most of you in here have seen enough procedural crime shows to understand that fact. Even if you slept through 8th grade phys- uh, civics. But this wasn't always so. There have been times in history where the government assumed you were guilty and where you would need to prove your own innocence. This is called the presumption of guilt but in the proceedings of God's people. It is not the presumption of innocence, nor the presumption of guilt that is the rule. It is the presumption of grace. The presumption of grace. We, as the people of God, assume the grace of God and that grace covers every sin. For His people. There is no sin that we cannot take to Him in repentance and receive forgiveness for. And as we even mentioned this last Wednesday in our Bible study discussion, repentance is necessary where there's guilt. Does it add any merit to you that you don't murder your enemy simply because the law of the land would punish you? Does that make you a good person? Because you refrain from putting your hands around the neck of your enemy and squeezing until the life goes out. No. Jesus answered that question in the first sermon recorded in the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell." It is not good enough simply to refrain from the bad stuff because the law says so. We could go through the rest of the commandments. Jesus dealt with every one of them in the Sermon on the Mount. I think you get the point though. Not doing the things the law prohibits is not enough. It's better than doing the things the law prohibits, but it's not good enough. We have a changed relationship with the law. We long to obey because we love God. We long to serve because we're His children who delight in obedience. That is our relationship with the law. The law tells us what God approves, what, God, what pleases Him. And we do it because we love Him. Now you might be thinking, now hang on a second. You're not describing me. I wake up every day with a thirst for sin. I go through my day and fall more often than I stay up. When I'm alone, my mind dwells on sin almost continually. My friend, if this is how you're living your life, you're the very one that this assembly is for. That was the state of the people Ezra was calling to Jerusalem. That is the state of everyone the church would reach out to. Because to overcome sin, we must love God over everything. And the point is not simply to empty yourself of sin, but to be filled with the Spirit. God is not wanting to turn us into an empty vessel. He wants to turn us into the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit will bring you to love God more and more. Repent of your sin. Would you be like those who in Ezra's time refused to come and hear the Word? One commentator said it this way, It is God who is faithful in providing for them, but through lack of repentance they fail to benefit from God's promises. The faithless would live in self-imposed exile due to disobedience and refusal to live in holiness." Those people who didn't answer Ezra's call chose to be excluded from God's people. They didn't marry idolaters because they made a mistake. They married idolaters because they were idolaters. And they chose not to be counted with God's people. And so they would not enjoy the benefits of being God's people. But Ezra calls them to repent. That means to promise God, really promise Him that you want to turn from your sin and fill your heart with the things that are of God. Read the Scriptures He's given you for your instruction. Let your heart meditate. Let your heart linger on what you can do that will please Him. And when your will or your laziness or your pride try to hold you back from obedience, obey Him anyway. Because you love Him. And you want to please Him. Because the assembly is important. God wants your repentance more than sacrifice. He desires you to follow Him with your heart, not to be dragged along by your neck. When Ezra called the people to the assembly, it was to bring the matter before them all publicly. And the penalties he threatened were for those who refused to even be counted among God's people. They were the ones who refused to even hear word of repentance they were the ones who considered obedience to God too small a thing to bother with and the result for them was precisely the result we see if someone refuses to repent from clear sin in Matthew 18:17 Jesus says and if he refuses to listen even to the church that word means assembly Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When someone holds to their clear sin, perhaps even denying its sinfulness, that is the surest indication they have not received the gospel in its power. They may sing the loudest, pray the prettiest, smile the biggest, but they need Jesus. They need the grace, mercy, and repentance that He brings. There are people who call themselves Christians out there whose entire Christian experience, even here with a church on every street corner it seems like, the only experience they have is listening to television or radio personalities. I don't care if everyone, every person they're listening to is preaching the 100% pure gospel. If they are not part of an assembly, a church, and have put themselves under its authority, they need to look very carefully whether they are in Christ or not. Because the assembly is important. The assembling together of God's people is vital to us all as believers in and followers of Jesus Christ Hebrews 10 24 and 25 said let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another the church the assembly of the chosen who worship God alone through Jesus Christ is God's assembly for today We should be guarding from sin in ourselves first, but we should also help guard each other after that. In that same chapter in Matthew, verse 15, Jesus begins that discussion by saying, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But I do want to bring out something here. The Word is not if your brother sinned. If your brother sins. That word sins is what in Greek is called the aorist active. It began in the past and continues through the present. This verse is not an excuse to pile on Sins that have already been repented of. It is not even an excuse to discuss them. Those sins are past. Those sins are forgiven if repentance has been made. What this Matthew 18.5 is telling us is if there is a continuing sin that has not been dealt with, Make the assumption that your brother does not know that it's sinful. And explain it to them. It does not mean that we are called to bring out every sin we see somebody do. That we become spiritual busybodies. It means that we seek only to bring a gentle light on on ongoing sin. Helping the other person to see the sinfulness of that sin. And always, 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 always with the heart of grace and mercy, seeking only their repentance. In fact, I would suggest that if you do not have such a heart of love Above all, for that person, say nothing at all and leave the task to another who is in a position to love that person and then repent of your lack of love instead. I realize that may sound harsh, but I think all of us have felt the judgmental corrections of others in the name. Of holiness. Because above all, church, we must be praying for each other. In the times when we are not gathered, in the times when we are not assembled, we need to be praying for each other. Ezra fasted and he prayed for the people. we can afford the time to pray urgently for each other. And the temptations and the trials that we face, even when we're not even aware of the details. God knows. And in praying for each other, pray that we as a congregation, as an assembly, as a city set on the hill, as a light... Would be perfected every day into holiness, and that the light of the gospel will always shine from us. Let's pray. Our Father, as we love you more let us love each other more. As your Spirit draws us more to you, let Him draw us more and more to each other. Let our love be love that anguishes in private for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Let our love be such that we would rather put away any sin than to displease You. God, what is there that You have not done to save us, to redeem us, to bring us out of the death of sin, And into the life that begins in your gospel. You've done everything. We make no contribution until after we are made alive. But it's so easy to take it for granted. To look at things that we may have conquered or may have never even been tempted with and pass judgment instead of dispensing grace, mercy, and calling the sinner to repentance. Teach us. Because your grace is enough to cover every single sin. Your grace is enough to bring us out of any depth. Your grace is enough to bring us to repentance. To bring us, instead of being conformed to the image of this world, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is why you sent your Son. That is why He paid for our sins on a cross. That is why He experienced your entire unfiltered wrath on that cross. What we could never see was portrayed in the most painful execution that could be made. And you did all that to save us who were at, your time, at that time enemies. You looked and you called us to leave behind our sin, to leave behind our rebellion and come to You in repentance and faith, to receive Your grace and Your mercy and to receive the hope, the expectation, the guarantee that we will be with You forever. God, you are truly great. And every praise goes to you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.